It had been a long three years. Since 1587, John White, governor of Roanoke Colony in what's now North Carolina, had been away fighting the Spanish off the coast of his native England, though this had not been his original intent. Three years prior, he had departed for the mother country for supplies, leaving his daughter and infant granddaughter, the latter of whom was the first English person to be born on American soil, behind with the other 112 colonists. Upon his return to England, however, he had learned that an intense maritime conflict had broken out with Spain, and Queen Elizabeth I, the reigning English monarch at the time, had ordered a proclamation stating that any and all English ships be employed to combat the enemy forces. Now, in the late summer of 1590, he was back with the supplies at last, but was startled to find, after making landfall, that not a trace of the colony nor its inhabitants could be found. The only clue left behind was a cryptic message that had been carved on a wooden post, a single word or name that would haunt him for the rest of his days, Croatoan. What did this mysterious name mean? What happened to the colonists at Roanoke? And how does this unsolved mystery continue to endure over four centuries after it took place? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. At long last, there was land in sight. As Florentine explorer Giovanni da Verrazzano stood on the prow of his ship in the summer of 1524, he concluded that the landmass he was seeing was a narrow isthmus that separated the Atlantic Ocean from the Pacific. Like many European explorers before him, he sought the fabled Northwest Passage, a mythic sea route that supposedly led to the spoils and riches of China, as well as the rest of the Far East. Though he hadn't, in fact, found a way to Asia, what he had stumbled upon are a series of barrier islands now known as the Outer Banks, a 200-mile, or 320-kilometer, stretch that extends from North Carolina all the way up to southeast Virginia. Thinking he had stumbled upon a different route to China, Verrazzano reported his findings back to his financier, King Francis I of France. When the French king did nothing to pursue this discovery, the Florentine turned to Henry VIII of England. Though he too applauded Verrazzano's findings, the English monarch did nothing to investigate the matter further. This expedition didn't prove in vain, however, as Verrazzano made landfall in several places up the Atlantic coast of North America, venturing as far north as present-day Nova Scotia and chronicling everything he saw and experienced. It wasn't until 1578 that Verrazzano's discovery would find a benefactor. Perhaps not surprisingly, it was the English who rose to the occasion and seized the opportunity to expand their dominion. That year, Queen Elizabeth I granted a charter to English explorer Sir Henry Gilbert to colonize those territories that were, in the language of the document itself, quote, unclaimed by Christian kingdoms, unquote. Though the specific terms of the charter were unclear, Gilbert interpreted them as having free reign to the spoils of the North American continent north of Spanish-held Florida. But before Gilbert had the chance to disembark, he passed away in 1583. Following his death, the Queen divided the charter between Gilbert's brother, Adrian, as well as Gilbert's half-brother, the famed English explorer Sir Walter Raleigh. Adrian was awarded a land patent on Newfoundland and all points north, in what's now Canada, in the hopes that he would find the fabled Northwest Passage to China. Raleigh, on the other hand, was granted the land south of the aforementioned territories, that is, those that were not already claimed by Spain. But Raleigh's part of the charter held an additional clause, to establish a colony north of Spanish Florida by 1591, or else lose his right to colonization. He was, once again in the language of the document itself, quote, to discover, search, find out, and view such remote heathen and barbarous lands, countries, and territories, to have, hold, occupy, and enjoy, unquote. 
Though not explicit, the meaning of this clause was clear. In conjunction with founding an English colony, Raleigh was to establish a base of operations from which he could send privateers, that is, privately owned ships or sailors for hire to engage in maritime warfare, to raid the treasure galleons of the Spanish navy. But despite the powers presented him in the charter, he was not allowed to leave the Queen's side, as he was one of her most trusted officials. As such, he deployed his associates on these expeditions in his place, while he oversaw operations from his headquarters in London. The first of these expeditions, known as the Amadis Barlow Expedition, disembarked on April 27, 1584. The fleet consisted of just two ships, the larger of which was commanded by Captain Philip Amadis, while the smaller was captained by one Arthur Barlow. The journey utilized a fairly standard transatlantic route common at the time, first sailing south in order to catch the fabled trade winds, which, in turn, carried them westward to the West Indies, that is, the Caribbean, where they were able to gather fresh water. From there, the fleet sailed north until July 4th that same year, when they finally spotted land just off the coast of what's now North Carolina, specifically Cape Fear. Nine days later, the two ships made landfall at an inlet north of present-day Hatterask Island. The crew named said inlet Port Ferdinando after Amadis's pilot, Simon Fernandez, who had discovered it. Not long after the fleet had arrived, the local Native American tribe, the Secotan, had come to greet the strange visitors. The Secotan, whose jurisdiction not only included Roanoke Island, but also a sizable chunk of the North Carolina mainland between the Pamlico River and Albemarle Sound, had just returned from a war with the neighboring Pamlico tribe. As such, the Secotan chieftain, Wingina, who had been injured in the skirmish, sent his brother, Granganimeo, as the tribe's ambassador in his place. The English and Secotan soon established friendly relations, and, upon the fleet's return to England in the autumn of 1584, both Amadis and Barlow spoke highly of the tribe's generosity and hospitality, as well as the strategic location of Roanoke Island. In addition, they had brought back with them two Native Americans, a Secotan named Wanchese and a Croatan named Manteo, whose mother was the chief of the nearby Croatan tribe of Croatoan Island. Travelogues from the expedition gave glowing reports of the region, described as Edenic and bountiful as well as an unspoiled paradise, though it's believed that these accounts were embellished by Raleigh himself. Still, the queen was impressed by everything she'd heard, and a year later, in 1585, Raleigh was knighted and proclaimed Knight Lord and Governor of Virginia, the latter of which was the name she'd given to the land granted to him in the New World. With this new title and responsibility having been placed on his shoulders, he hurriedly began seeking investors to fund a colony. The first proposed colony was planned as a military operation, through which the exploration of the area, as well as the exploitation of its natural resources, could be carried out. English explorer Ralph Lane was appointed governor of the venture, and an estimated 300 people were due to be the colony's initial inhabitants. When the fleet, this time consisting of seven ships in total, set out on April 9, 1585, from the port city of Plymouth, however, some 600 crewmen were spread out across each of the vessels, though it was never intended that they would all stay in the New World. Included in the crew were none other than Philip Amadis, the aforementioned captain of the initial voyage to North Carolina, though this time he would serve as the fledgling colony's admiral, Commander Sir Richard Grenville led the overall mission this time around. In addition, several civilians, namely renowned artisans and skilled workers, were also present on the voyage. Joachim Gantz, a mining expert from Bohemia, present-day Czech Republic, is considered the first Jew to have permanently settled in North America. John White, a respected artist, was also on board, as well as Thomas Harriet, a famed scientist who's best remembered for his theory of refraction. Also present were Wanchese and Monteo, who, after their stay in England, were due to return home. But this particular voyage would prove far more treacherous and challenging than the previous. 
Just days into the journey was the fleet, consisting of the Tiger, the Roebuck, the Red Lion, the Elizabeth, and the Dorothy, along with two smaller sailing ships, thrown off course by a massive storm off the coast of Portugal. As a result, the Tiger was separated from the rest of the fleet, while one of the smaller vessels sank. Having anticipated such an ordeal, however, Simon Fernandes, now serving as pilot of the Tiger, had devised a plan for all ships to meet at Mosquetal on Puerto Rico's southern coast in the event that they should be separated from one another. So it was that the Tiger pressed on alone, making good headway and arriving at the agreed-upon location on May 11th that same year, well ahead of the others. As they waited for the rest of the fleet to arrive, Grenville ordered the construction of a base camp wherein his crew could rest while simultaneously defending themselves from the Spanish, who had laid claim to the island several years before. This allowed the crewmen to practice building the necessary fortifications they would need in their new colony. They also rebuilt a smaller sailing vessel to make up for the one they'd lost in the storm. Eight days later, on May 19th, the Elizabeth made landfall at Mosquetal, just in time to see the completion of both the temporary fort and the smaller ship. The other ships, however, never made it to the rendezvous point. One of them had run out of supplies just shy of Jamaica, and its captain had made the difficult decision to send twenty of its crew ashore. The Roebuck, Red Lion, and Dorothy, on the other hand, had pressed on all the way to the intended destination on the Outer Banks, arriving in mid-June. Meanwhile, back in Puerto Rico, Grenville had made contact with Spanish authorities in the hopes of obtaining supplies and provisions. Unfortunately, they never delivered them. Fearing the action would lead to a surprise attack on his men, Grenville ordered them to pack up shop. Though they had been forced to hastily flee, it wasn't a total loss. While crossing the Mona Passage, which separates Puerto Rico from Hispaniola, the island now home to Haiti and the Dominican Republic, Grenville was able to capture two Spanish ships and added them to his fleet. Future Governor Lane commandeered one of them and sailed it to Salinas Bay off Puerto Rico's southwest coast, where he captured valuable salt mounds that the Spanish had collected. At La Isabela in what's now the Dominican Republic, Grenville was finally able to obtain supplies when the Spanish, seeing how well-armed their English adversaries were, agreed to set aside their differences and trade with them. By late June, the rest of the fleet had arrived off the coast of North Carolina, but the Tiger was heavily damaged when she struck a shoal, ruining much of the food supply on board. This forced the crew to reassess the location of their prospective colony, as the shallow waters and inlets made it virtually impossible to establish a port. In addition, the loss of supplies meant that fewer men would be able to stay behind to build said colony. Grenville made the decision to leave only about a hundred behind with Governor Lane while he sent crewman John Arundel back to England to report that the fleet had arrived safely. Grenville's first order of business was to fulfill the colony's objectives by getting it off the ground. Assured that another fleet with more supplies and colonists was on its way, he began establishing contact with the local Native American populations, largely to obtain provisions until this new fleet arrived. Unbeknownst to him, however, said fleet had been redirected to Newfoundland to warn English fishing fleets of mounting tensions with Spain. As the Tiger was being repaired, Grenville and a handful of men, including the scientist Harriet and the artist White, embarked on an expedition to nearby Pamlico Sound, where they explored the Secotan villages of Pamlico, Aquascogoc, and Secotan. There they made initially friendly contact with this indigenous population, allowing both Harriet and White the chance to extensively chronicle and study the natives' way of life. These findings were ultimately published in 1588 and offered English readers a fascinating and rare glimpse into the lives of the New World's inhabitants. But it wasn't long before tensions began to flare. Following the expedition, a silver cup was reported missing from one of the ships. Grenville, assuming that the item had been stolen by the inhabitants at Aquascogoc, sent Amadis with a small envoy back to the village to demand that it be returned. Despite the natives' insistence that they hadn't taken a thing, Amadis and his men proceeded to light the entire settlement ablaze, sending the residents scattering. 
Despite this heinous act, the English maintained several ties with other Secotan villages, and in July of 1585 met with Granganimeo, the tribe's ambassador, to discuss the proposed site for their colony, Roanoke Island, located just off the coast of what's now North Carolina. Both parties agreed that its location was strategically significant, as it not only provided easy access to the ocean, but would allow the English to avoid being detected by Spanish patrols in the region. Shortly after this historic meeting, Governor Lane ordered the construction of a fort on the north side of the island. Roanoke Colony was well underway. On August 25, 1585, Grenville set sail for England aboard the newly repaired Tiger. Just days later, the Roebuck made the return journey as well. Left behind were Governor Lane and a total of some 107 men who set to work on building the new colony. But they soon grew despondent. After all, many of them had signed up after hearing tales of an unspoiled paradise chock full of gold, silver, and other precious gems and jewels. They did, however, find that the local native populations utilized copper in their weaponry, but were never able to discover its source. Needless to say, morale amongst the colonists was low, made all the lower by the fact that they were essentially forced to beg, steal, and borrow from the surrounding Native American villages. Once their English provisions had dried up, however, they were dependent on American corn, grain, fish, venison, and even oysters, the latter of which they were taught to hunt by the indigenous peoples of the area. In the meantime, Captain Philip Amatis set out with a party of men to explore the immediate vicinities due north of Roanoke Colony. The coastal regions they discovered are now part of Chesapeake Bay, just off the coast of Virginia. Along the way, Amatis and his crew made contact with the Chesapeake Native American villages of Chesapeake and Skikoak. As Amatis had heard from the Secotan that this latter village was the largest city in the region, he half expected to uncover a fabulously wealthy civilization, quite like those discovered by the Spanish in Central and South America some sixty years prior. Imagine his surprise, then, when he and his men instead found a decidedly more modest setup. Still, they marveled at the fertile quality of the soil, as well as the milder climate, and were able to gather some resources and provisions for Roanoke in the process. As the Amatis expedition was taking place, the scientist, Thomas Harriet, and mining expert, Joachim Gantz, had embarked on a journey of their own. Exploring the Virginia Territory on foot, they made note of the natural resources that would be available to the colonists, and encountered several Native American tribes and villages along the way. During this foray into the New World's interior, however, Harriet made a curious note in his travelogues. Each village the colonists had visited suffered, upon their departure, an unusual and deadly pestilence the like of which had never been seen or heard of before. Though the science at the time couldn't explain the fatal phenomenon, historians and scientists alike now know that the English had brought with them smallpox, influenza, and other such diseases. The indigenous populations, having never been exposed to them before, had no natural immunity to them at the time, resulting in heavy losses in their respective populations. Word soon spread among the Secotan that the sicknesses were the result of dark magic and supernatural elements that had been unleashed by the English. Though Wingina, the Secotan chieftain, ultimately, albeit miraculously, recovered from his own bout with the pestilence, countless others weren't so lucky. To make matters worse, the epidemic greatly impacted the autumn harvest, which, in turn, had a domino effect that not only affected the natives but the colonists as well, who were heavily reliant on such vital natural resources. Comes the spring of 1586, relations between Roanoke Colony and the Secotan had all but severed. With the colonists having spent much of the winter eating through the natives' food supply, combined with the death of Granganimeo, Chief Wingina's brother as well as the tribe's ambassador, as a result of the epidemic, Wingina's attitude toward the English shifted. He soon changed his name to Pemisapan, literally one who watches, and quickly established a new tribal capital on Roanoke Island itself. While these actions were by no means coincidental, the colonists were impervious to them at first, completely unaware of the dangers that loomed ahead.
That March, Governor Lane met with Pemisapan to discuss plans to explore the mainland beyond the Sekotan's borders. While the chieftain seemingly supported the idea, he was quick to warn Lane that the nearby Chowanoke tribe was meeting with its allies in order to plan an attack on the English. Lane, mortified by this news, gathered the colonists together in preparation for a fight. After the meeting, however, Pemisapan notified Menatonon, the Chowanoke leader, that the English were on the way and to expect hostilities. When, days later, Lane and his men had arrived at the Chowanoke village of Chowanoak on the mainland, the explorers were startled to find Menatonon himself, along with representatives from the Mangoak, Moratuk, and Weapemeok tribes. When Lane questioned the Chowanoke chieftain, he informed the governor that the attack plan had been Wingina's idea. To ease tensions and hostilities, Menatonon quickly informed Lane about the rich lands that lay within the country's interior. He told tales of a powerful tribe to the northeast, believed by historians to be the Powhatan of eastern Virginia, and that Lane should essentially bring an army if he wished to make contact with its chieftain. Menatonon went on to describe a sea that lay beyond the mouth of the nearby Roanoke River, leading the English to believe that a route to the Pacific and therefore Asia was still a viable possibility. To top it all off, the chief's son, Skiko, mentioned a place to the west he referred to as which was supposedly rich in rare and valuable metals. Lane believed them to be copper, and more importantly, gold. Fired by these tales, the governor soon drew up a detailed expedition in which his men would divide into two groups, one in search of the Powhatan to the northeast, and the other to find the mouth of the Roanoke River, and therefore the fabled sea beyond it, along the Atlantic coast, and rendezvous at Chesapeake Bay. But as Roanoke Colony was low on supplies, he postponed the mission until after Easter, at which time said provisions were due to arrive. In the meantime, Lane ransomed Menatonon and held the chief's son, Skiko, hostage at Roanoke. Shortly thereafter, Lane disembarked with some forty men up the Roanoke River to search for Chaunis Temoatan. This expedition proved fruitless, though, as they encountered nothing but deserted villages and several indigenous hostiles waiting in ambush. This was because Wingina had warned the tribes of the region ahead of time that the English were coming, and while Lane and his men had expected the Moratuk to provide them with food and provisions along the way, they too had fled. So it was that Lane and his force returned to the colony just after Easter, empty-handed and practically starved to death. In the time that Lane and his men had been away, rumors had circulated throughout the region that they had been killed. Pemisapan, meanwhile, planned to withdraw the Sekotan from Roanoke Island and leave the colonists to starve. Needless to say, he was shocked when they returned and thus reneged on his initial plan. When he questioned his council on what should be done about the English, an elder named Ensenore argued in the colonists' favor, inviting them to stay on Roanoke Island. In addition to this, a Chowanoke envoy arrived to inform Governor Lane that the Weapemeok chieftain, Okisko, had pledged fealty, that is, sworn allegiance to a lord or monarch, to both Queen Elizabeth I and Sir Walter Raleigh. This sudden turn of events seemed to usher in, for the English anyway, a change of fortune, one that shifted the balance of power in the region in their favor. As a result, Pemisapan nixed his plans altogether, choosing instead to order his people to sow crops and fish for the colonists. Luck is a fickle creature. When it's with you, it works wonders, but when it turns against you, it does so swiftly and mercilessly. No one understood this better than the colonists at Roanoke, for on April 20th, 1586, the aforementioned Sekotan elder, Ensenore, died, and with him went the last hope of Sekotan's support within Pemisapan's council. In his place, Wanchese, the very same Sekotan who had traveled to England following the initial Amadas Barlow expedition, rose to become a senior advisor to the chieftain. Based upon his time there, he'd explained, he knew the English to be a threat who would stop at nothing until they'd gained full control of the natives' ancestral lands. Not needing any more convincing, Pemisapan immediately halted all provisions to the colonists. No longer able to fend for themselves, Governor Lane broke his men up into small groups and sent them to both the mainland and the outer banks in order to beg and scrounge for food. 
Through it all, Lane continued to hold Menatonon son hostage. Though Pemisapan met with him regularly, thinking him to be sympathetic to the anti-English cause, Skiko maintained his allegiance to the colonists, even going as far as to warn them of an impending offensive by the Sekotan and a confederation of their allies. With the weapons and supplies they'd gained from trade with the English, the Sekotan had been able to win over their constituents. The plan was simple, to ambush the governor and other important figures as they slept, and then signal the rest of their armies to do away with the remaining colonists. In response, Lane passed misinformation secondhand on to Pemisapan, stating that an English fleet had arrived at Roanoke with enough man and firepower to wipe the enemy out. In a frenzy, the Sekotan chieftain gathered as many allies as he could and readied for war. But on the night of May 31st, 1586, on Lane's command, the native warriors stationed at Roanoke were all slaughtered. The following day, under the pretense of negotiating to return Skiko to his father, Pemisapan admitted Lane and his men into his council chambers. No sooner had he done so did the governor give the signal, and his men shot the Sekotan chieftain, who fled into the woods. But the English trailed in hot pursuit, and soon caught up with him, finishing the job and, in a gruesome turn of events, returned to the colony with his severed head, which they then proceeded to place outside the fort on a spike. Knowing full well that the indigenous peoples of the area would avenge Pemisapan's death, Governor Lane made contact with the famed English explorer Sir Francis Drake, who happened to be in the region following successful military and naval campaigns against the Spanish in the Caribbean cities of Santo Domingo, now part of the Dominican Republic, Cartagena in what's now Colombia, and St. Augustine in Florida. Drake's fleet, now heavy not only with the spoils of war, but also with slaves, hardware, and refugees, had originally intended to deliver them to Roanoke Colony itself. However, upon hearing of the misfortune that had befallen it, he agreed to leave four months' worth of supplies as well as one of his ships, the aptly named Francis, <laughs> big ego much, with the colonists. But as is usually the case, everything went from bad to worse when a hurricane struck, sweeping the Francis, as well as the supplies on board, out to sea. Under such dire circumstances and grim prospects, Governor Lane had no choice but to evacuate the colony. Drake agreed to take the colonists back to England. Included in the group were none other than Monteo, the Croatan who, along with Juan Chese, had gone to England following the Amadis Barlow expedition two years prior, as well as one of his associates, a man named Toaye. Only three of the original colonists were left behind. So it was that Drake's fleet returned to England in July of 1586. Following their arrival, the colonists introduced such exotic crops as potatoes, corn, and tobacco to England. Never had such luxuries been seen before by the English. As for the refugees and slaves that Drake had initially intended to drop off at Roanoke, historians remain uncertain as to what became of them, as there was no record of them having returned to England with his crew or the evacuated colonists. It's generally believed, however, that they were sent ashore when Roanoke was evacuated, with Drake having been reassured that another ship would come for them and the three remaining colonists shortly thereafter. Said vessel, a supply ship sent by Sir Walter Raleigh himself, arrived in Roanoke just days after the evacuation. Not a trace of the colonists, slaves, or refugees could be found. Two weeks later, a relief fleet under Grenville's orders arrived at the colony, bearing a year's worth of supplies and military reinforcements in the form of some 400 men. They, too, found no trace of the colony or its inhabitants. Grenville, visibly shaken, apprehended and interrogated three natives, one of whom gave a detailed account of the evacuation. Shortly thereafter, the fleet returned to England, with Granville leaving behind a detachment of just 15 men to maintain an English presence in the colony, as well as uphold Raleigh's claim to Roanoke. But just as the three remaining colonists, refugees, and slaves had likely met their demise, so too did Grenville's detachment. After Grenville's fleet left, five of the Englishmen, who had gone hunting for oysters nearby, were met by two Native Americans who supposedly wished to converse peacefully. 
One of them, however, was concealing a wooden club, which he used to kill an Englishman. Another twenty-eight natives emerged from the underbrush and proceeded to ambush the others. One of them escaped to warn his comrades, but was also killed when flaming arrows rained down on them. Somehow, the thirteen remaining Englishmen managed to escape in a small boat, making Port Ferdinando their destination. They were never seen or heard from again, and it's believed that they too were ultimately captured and killed by the natives. Undeterred by the disappearance of the initial three colonists, and wishing to maintain his right to the Virginia Territory, Sir Walter Raleigh made yet another attempt at establishing a colony at Roanoke. This second venture took place on May 8, 1587, when a fleet of three ships, one of which was captained by John White, the artist who had gone on the initial journey to colonize Roanoke two years prior, disembarked for Roanoke once more. This time around, however, the plan, as per a charter that had been approved by Sir Walter Raleigh on January 7th that same year, was to establish, quote, the city of Raleigh, unquote, with White serving as its first governor. On board were 115 people who would serve as the colony's first inhabitants, including White's pregnant daughter, Eleanor, and her husband, Ananias Dare. These colonists were largely middle-class Londoners, believed to be having a go of it in the New World so they could become landed gentry, that is, a social class of landowners who could live entirely off of rental income. On July 22nd, they arrived at Croatoan Island, just off the coast from Roanoke. White's first order of business was to rendezvous with the detachment of 15 men Grenville had left behind before pressing on to Chesapeake Bay. The following day, White and a party of men reached the site of the former colony. They were surprised to find that it had been completely abandoned, and that no trace of Grenville's men was anywhere to be found. The houses were overgrown with weeds and melons, the fort had been completely dismantled, and human bones discovered at the site were believed to be those of one of Grenville's men, likely the victim of a Native American attack. Three days later, however, the new colonists disembarked, but shortly thereafter, one of them, a man named George Howe, was famously killed by a native while foraging for crabs alone off Albemarle Sound. Realizing how dire the situation with the region's indigenous population had become, White attempted to re-establish ties with the Croatan tribe. With the help of Monteo, the new governor was able to learn what had become of Grenville's men. They had been attacked by a confederation of tribes from the mainland, they explained to Monteo, which had been led by Wanchese. Though the colonists tried to negotiate a truce with the Croatan, they received no response. Taking matters into his own hands, White led a preemptive strike on the nearby village of Dasamongue Ponque, but, fearing retaliation for the death of George Howe, its inhabitants had fled into the woods prior to the attack. All the English found were a few Croatoan stragglers and looters, whom they accidentally attacked in the confusion. Monteo, however, smoothed everything out between the two factions, and, due to his efforts, was baptized and given the title of Lord of Roanoke and Dasamongue Ponque. Then, on August 18, 1587, Governor White's daughter, Eleanor, gave birth to a baby girl, whom she named Virginia, after the colony that was to be her home. Virginia Dare would go down in history as becoming the first English person born on American soil. Although the English had smoothed things over with the Croatan, the new colonists still felt unsafe knowing that other tribes in the region wouldn't be as amicable. As such, they pleaded with their governor to return to England to explain the severity of their situation and plead for help. Though initially reluctant to leave them, White ultimately agreed and departed for the mother country just nine days after the birth of his granddaughter. In the meantime, the colonists braced themselves for a move north, some 50 miles, 80 kilometers, up Albemarle Sound. On November 5th that same year, White returned to England in what would prove to be a very inopportune time to have done so. Word of an impending attack against England by the notorious Spanish Armada had reached the capital at London. As such, Queen Elizabeth I forbade any ship from departing the country so as to participate in the oncoming conflict. By the time winter came around, Grenville himself had been granted a waiver to lead a fleet to the Caribbean to attack Spanish forces there. White was permitted to join him in a resupply ship. 
As the departure date in March of 1588 drew nearer, however, adverse weather conditions kept the fleet at bay, pun definitely intended, until Grenville received new orders to stay put instead to defend the mother country. Two ships in Grenville's fleet, the Roe and the Brave, were deemed unfit for royal naval combat, and White was given permission to take them to Roanoke. But after they disembarked on April 22nd that same year, their captains made a side mission of capturing several Spanish ships in the hopes of looting them of their plunder. This would ultimately prove to be a costly venture, for on May 6th they were attacked by French pirates off the coast of Morocco. Nearly 24 men were killed, and the supplies, originally intended for the Roanoke colony, were all looted. Thus the ships were forced to turn back to England. To make matters worse, the Queen maintained a ban on ship departures following the defeat of the Spanish Armada so as to redouble their efforts on arranging a naval counterattack against Spain. Said attack was set for the following year, in 1589, meaning that White would have to wait out his return to Roanoke. The opportunity would finally present itself in 1590, when Sir Walter Raleigh arranged passage for White to Roanoke on a privateering expedition orchestrated by English merchant and shipowner John Watts. The six-ship fleet would spend the summer months pillaging Spanish holdings in the Caribbean, while two of its vessels, the Hopewell and the Moonlight, would split from the others to send the governor and supplies to the colony. At last, on August 12, 1590, the two ships anchored on the northern end of Croatoan Island. Three days later, on the evening of August 15th, plumes of smoke were spotted off Roanoke Island. Still another was spotted the following morning, this time on the southern end of Croatoan, though their investigation into the matter turned up nothing. Over the ensuing two days, White and his crew attempted, with great difficulty and loss of life, to cross Pamlico Sound. Just after nightfall on August 17th, they spotted a fire on the north side of Roanoke Island, but decided not to risk going ashore for fear of any hostile natives they might encounter. They decided to spend the night in anchored rowboats, singing English folk songs and sea shanties in the hopes that the colonists would hear them and let them know of their presence. The following day, August 18th, White's granddaughter's third birthday, White and the men made landfall. The first thing they noticed were fresh tracks in the sand, though no one was around. Neither could any of the colony's boats be found along the shore. Pushing on, they found the initial CRO carved into a tree. They soon reached the site of the colony itself, where White noted that a wooden palisade, a sort of makeshift defensive wall, had been erected sometime during his absence. Even more mysterious, the name Croatoan had been carved into one of the posts near the entrance of the colony. When the men questioned the governor as to the meaning behind the inscriptions, White assured them that it meant that the colonists had left peacefully, and of their own accord, as they had agreed three years before that they would leave a secret message behind as a sort of distress signal should any trouble arise. But as they ventured within the colony's protective wall, they found that the houses had been disassembled and that anything that could be carried had been taken away. In addition, several personal belongings, such as large trunks, including one belonging to White himself, with effects he had left behind in 1587, had been dug up and looted. That evening, after spending the day searching the site, they returned to the Hopewell with plans to visit Croatoan the following day. But in a strange turn of events, the ship's anchor cable snapped, leaving her with only one working anchor and cable. Due to heightened risk of shipwreck, the search and rescue mission came to an abrupt halt. While the moonlight set sail for England, the Hopewell's crew struck a bargain with White. They would spend the winter in the Caribbean, replace their anchor and cable, and return to the Outer Banks in the spring of 1591. White agreed, and they set off, but were blown off course on the way, forcing them to stop for supplies in the Azores off the coast of West Africa. But even there, the winds prevented them from making port, and ultimately they returned to England on October 24, 1590. 
In the years following the second attempt at colonization of Roanoke, several shoddy attempts were made to try and locate the missing colonists. Sir Walter Raleigh led the first, though his first transatlantic journey in 1595 was merely a cover for attempting to locate El Dorado, the fabled city of gold. When this venture proved unsuccessful, he claimed to have sailed past the outer banks off the coast of Roanoke Island on the return voyage, but that bad weather had prevented him from going on shore to investigate. Historians believe, since the colonists had not been proven dead, and therefore could very well still be alive, Raleigh could legally maintain his claim on the Virginia Territory. Seven years later, in 1602, he sent another mission, seemingly to search for the missing colonists, to the Outer Banks, but this was largely a cover-up for harvesting sassafras, a plant then used for medicinal purposes, the price of which had skyrocketed in England at the time. Using his own personal ship this time around, he sent one Samuel Mace and a team of skilled sailors to the southern shore of Croatoan Island in the hopes of finding said sassafras. But, once again, adverse weather in the area prevented them from staying, and the vessel was forced to turn back. The following year, in 1603, Raleigh was arrested and tried for treason against the then-reigning monarch, King James I, in the main plot, an alleged conspiracy against the English crown. This single-handedly ended his claims on the Virginia Territory. Finally, that same year, one last expedition was carried out in an attempt to search for the missing Roanoke colonists. Led by Bartholomew Gilbert, an English seafarer, the intended destination of this mission was Chesapeake Bay, but, you guessed it, bad weather prevented them from landing there, and they opted instead for an unspecified location nearby. Once they made landfall on July 29th, Gilbert and several of his men were killed by natives. What was left of the crew was forced to flee and return to England, none the wiser on the fate of the Roanoke colony. In the years since the disappearances of the Roanoke colonists, many theories have emerged as to what ultimately became of them, ranging from the logical to the supernatural. Some believe that they were absorbed into the neighboring Native American tribe societies and lived among them for the rest of their days. Still others think that they were killed by said natives, though no mass graves or human remains have ever been found to back this claim up. Then, of course, what with all the adverse weather that would befall sailors' attempts to locate the missing colonists, there are those who believe that something more mysterious and sinister is afoot. Everything from otherworldly phenomena to extraterrestrial abduction have been blamed. To this day, however, archaeological evidence hasn't turned up anything sufficient enough to solve the case. Will we ever know what became of the colonists at Roanoke? Perhaps. But one thing is certain. Their fate continues to haunt and fascinate us, and will no doubt continue to hold us spellbound for generations to come. Thanks for listening, and thank you for tuning in to this, the first in a series of spooky episodes I'll be doing throughout the month of October. What do you think became of the Roanoke Colony? Leave a comment on my latest post on Instagram at History Loves Company. That's history underscore loves underscore company, and let me know your theories. If you enjoyed this and other episodes of my podcast, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. By visiting anchor.fm slash history loves company, you'll find a support button. Click it, and you'll be directed to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. This podcast is available wherever podcasts are streaming, so please listen, like, and share. Don't forget to tune in next week for another spooktacular episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. <laughs>